this message today. And uh, the notes are available on our V1 Church mobile app. I know some of you um, actually take those notes and you add to them. We're gonna go deep today. I'm not gonna hold back on you. You all know I'm a theologian. I love to get into uh, the, the, the depth of the word. And so can we just feast for this brunch time service? I know we've got a lot of people watching live from home as well, and I wanna give this word to you in the way that God gave it. I'm gonna give you some Jewish historic context and bring you into first century Judaism to help you understand this word today. And so whether you're new to the faith or whether you've been going to church your entire life, you're gonna go to school today. All right. Somebody said, let's go, so let's do it. Let's start by taking the love test. If you have your Bibles or your notes, uh, we're gonna start in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses four through seven. This is the love test. Let's take the love test. I wanna bring your attention here. Insert your name. Now, don't do this to your spouse now. Insert your name. I'm gonna use myself. We're taking the love test. Mike is patient and kind. <laughs> <laughs> Mike does not envy or boast. Mike is not arrogant or rude. Don't laugh. Mike does not insist on his own way. Mike is not irritable and resentful. If you give me coffee, um, Mike does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Mike bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. First, how did you do? First Corinthians 13 love test. Did you fail? You know that like if you get 50%, that's not halfway, that's an F. Because if you're like, well, I'm good on half of those things, yeah, but um, that's an F, <laughs> right? I used to be a high school teacher and they'd be like, I got half of them right. I'm like, I'll see you next year. <laughs> you gotta get at least seven out of 10. Now this love test, how did you do? Now let me read this to you for those of you who don't know this scripture. Put it up, let's fill in the blanks with what? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. But we know from scripture that love is not a feeling, that God is love. So if you failed that test, it's an impossible standard that can only be actually met if the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is at work within you. The only true measure of love is Jesus. Human, I know I'm saying this for all the hippies. They're like, we are the world. <laughs> we are, you know, listen, that unity is a song. It'll never be a reality because you have nothing in common with a Muslim because they believe that Jesus is a prophet, but we believe Jesus is a savior, is the savior. And so you can't be in unity with somebody who doesn't believe because now they're definite. Watch, for those of you like, I can't, he said, I can't believe he said that. Um, I'm gonna offend you, but I'm gonna also give you the truth. Um, Jesus is love. So if your Jesus is a prophet, we have a different definition of love, so we could never be in unity. So this whole like, we are the world with my Hindu brothers and sisters. Well, um, if the Hindu Vedas are your standard for how to love people and you believe in karma, but I believe that Jesus is love, your version of karma and my version of love through the person of Jesus is not compatible. Therefore, we'll never be in true unity. I know this is offending some of you because like, I wish I went to a church where we just let everybody believe whatever they want. 
Um, but that only works in Hollywood for like a clip that they make to show you on television. It only works in a song that Bob Dylan didn't want to be in in the first place. Um, it doesn't work in reality. Because if the world knew how to find unity, we wouldn't be on the verge of war with Russia right now. Okay, and so I've got to start by saying, if you failed the love test, we all did. But there is a way to actually be the kind of person that can be patient and kind, even though you're Italian. There is a way that you can actually not envy or boast, even though you're Irish. There can be, because you know, you know like, fam- like there's a famous MMA fighter who, who is Irish, who is really good at boasting. You know, some of you know him. But there's a way to not be irritable and resentful, even though you're not caffeinated. It's the inner working of Jesus through you. So when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of your spirit, you become animated as the hands and feet of Jesus. And the more you die to self and decrease, see, just like the, uh, John said, I decrease so that Christ can increase. And he says, I lower myself. So it is possible to actually, see what? Think about when you're demon-possessed. You're like, I, that, I, I lost control of my body. What would Holy Spirit-possessed look like to you? I just never had patience, but I became possessed by the Holy Spirit. I become a patient person. Why? Because put up that scripture again, 1 Corinthians. I want to show you something. These are also the fruits of the Spirit. And so where there is a root of the love of Jesus, there is the fruit of patience, long-suffering, endurance, kindness, meekness, gentleness. It's all there, but only where there's Jesus because the world's type of patience is not the same as spiritual patience. The world's type of endurance is not the same as holy endurance. It's a cheap imitation. The world's version of kindness is I'll be kind to you so that you view me as being kind, but that's also pride. See, Jesus' kindness is actually, Jesus paid the total price for me. I'm indebted to him, and so I'm gonna treat you the way he treated me because I could never pay him back, so I don't expect you to pay me back. So you've gotta understand that if you go into a marriage relationship and you have a secular definition of love, you'll never love your spouse completely. Oh, I know I'm going there. Because you think love is a feeling because that feeling got you to the wedding aisle, but that feeling will not get you past the wedding day. It's gotta be sacrificial. It's gotta be the Jesus. Now, I'm gonna take you now to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, let me set the scene for you. It's a familiar scene with an unfamiliar revelation I'm about to give you. Matthew 14, Jesus is... Um, he knows that the disciples are out on the water and these are experienced fishermen. These guys were well acquainted with storms on the water, so it wouldn't have freaked them out. So the fact that it did, this storm must have been ugly. Does this make sense to you? It's just like here, we, we get snow in New York. If you get snow in Texas, you're freaking out, right? So the, they were well acquainted with storms, but this this Matthew chapter 14 story about the storm was so bad that they were like fearing for their lives. So Jesus says, okay, like cue me up to walk on water. 
and he begins to walk out and they're looking through the storm and they perceive him as a ghost. And they're saying, is this a ghost that's out there? What is going on? And as they begin to look out there, it was actually Peter who says in Matthew 14, um, you know, if it's possible, if that's you and, and, and I know it to be you, can I come out on the, on the water? Now, the way that you've heard this story taught is simply that, you know, Peter operated in faith. But there's a very significant Jewish context that's gonna help you understand who you ought to be and how you should live as a Christian today. And let me just break this down. So Jesus was not a moral teacher. So all your hippie friends who are like, oh, you go to church, that's cool. Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Um, no, he wasn't. Because if, if you took what he said as literal, he's a psychopath or he's the savior, but he can't, he's gotta be one or the other. So if you go to Jesus to learn good moral lessons you're, and you don't believe that he's, he's the son of God, you're going to a psychopath for moral lessons. I'm just trying to create a dividing line because I don't want our church full of people who are trying to mix the gospel here. You don't have permission to mix the gospel in V1. So don't bring that in here. It's because either he's a total psychopath or he's the savior. You got to pick because there is no hippie Jesus in our church. And those tingles that you get during worship is the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus resurrected and unleashed in the earth with no boundaries. Not a moral teacher. Oh, this could be a three-hour sermon. I feel the fire. So Jesus is a, was a Jewish rabbi with Jewish disciples. The first round of all 12 were Jews. So if you don't understand the context, you miss Matthew 14. And so people in this region, they believed that God had spoken to Moses and given him the five books of the Bible, okay, which we know as the Torah, the first five. And that was the center of their entire life, including their educational systems. So what that meant is when you went to school in a first century Jewish town, you learned, you learned the Torah. Does this make sense? You didn't have like, you know how you have curriculum nowadays and you have your science book, your math book. They had the Torah, okay? And what would happen is most Jewish boys would go to school in their local synagogue around the age of six. And this first flow, like the first introduction was called Beit Sefer. And by age 10, they would actually, now this is crazy. For, for many of you, this is gonna blow your mind. They would have your average kid, your average kid would memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy completely from age six to 10. That's crazy. Our kids, I mean, you think about that, like, is it possible? It's possible. Now, Bates Affair would last till 10. And then the, the next level, uh, or the first, yeah, then after Beit Sefer, most kids would no longer attend school. So around the age of 10, they would start apprenticing in their family trade and their family business. So about 10 years old, you're pre-puberty, you're early puberty, and you would be released into your family trade, which means being a fisherman which would mean woodworking or stoneworking, masonry. It would mean whatever your family trade was and you would be releasing that. But if you were intelligent enough and you could interpret, not just memorize, but you had the foundation of the ability to interpret the scripture that you memorized, you would go to the next level called Beit Talmud. And so in Beit Talmud, the best of the best would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, which was Genesis to Malachi. 
Can you imagine memorizing the entire Old Testament verbatim? So only a few percentage of kids at the age of 10 and, and above were able to do this. The rest were all, they would all go into the family trade. And then in Beit Talmud, the, the, this is where they would memorize Genesis to Malachi. But then Beit Midrash was the last and final stage. And the pupil would actually go to a rabbi and request to be able to follow them and take on their interpretation of the scriptures and learn how to do what the rabbi did. So here's what it would be. You would go, you would say, okay, I've memorized Genesis to Malachi. I've memorized every Hebrew scripture available and I've proven that I can skillfully interpret them. But you would go to a rabbi and you would say, okay, now um, basically quiz me. And it would be this brutal sit down quizzing over the scriptures. And if they felt that they had the chops, the first century rabbi would say, come follow me. Are you, are you with me? But if they didn't, they would say, hey, it's been a long journey for the last several years learning Genesis through Malachi, but I don't think you have what it takes to do what I do. So go to your family trade. So now that you understand that, from, from each stage they would encounter, imagine being a fisherman and you've heard about a rabbi named Jesus who has supernatural powers to heal people and demons, you just, and you hear about this famous rabbi, and then you're just fishing, and you think you're an idiot. You think that you don't have what it takes to actually do the most important thing in their society, which was memorize and interpret scriptures and operate within the supernatural realm to interact with God. And all of a sudden, what would happen is now he, this rabbi that you've heard about comes up to you and says, hey, come follow me. It would have been the biggest compliment you've ever received in your life because it would be almost as if God Almighty saw your potential even though no one else did, including yourself. So in Matthew chapter 14, Peter had such a revelation that said to have a rabbi doesn't just mean to learn what they learn, it means to do what they do. And so when you take the love test, if you're like, there's no way I can live up to this measure, you've got to get out of the boat of the smallness of your own family and how you were raised, and you've got to walk on the water of impossibility to become the person that your rabbi believed you can become when he called you to learn his sacred ways. It's supernatural and it's sacred, but the boat represents your, D your DNA, your, your legacy. It represents your family and everybody in that boat says we all have anger problems we all have no patience your boat represents your region oh no here in this region we believe these things and somebody's got to see Jesus in the distance and say my rabbi called me because he believes I can do what he's doing right now and get up out of the boat See, in your boat, everybody gets a divorce, but Jesus has raised you to be a water walker. In your boat, everybody stops before the breakthrough. Everybody stops. In your boat, everybody's poor, but there's abundance on the other side when you get out because your rabbi's saying, I've taught you the sacred and the supernatural. I've taught you. See, in this kingdom, when you need money, you open a fish's mouth. You don't catch more fish. 
See, see, why did he bring the coin out of the fish's mouth when they needed financial provision? Because to a fisherman, you get paid for how many fish you catch. And he said, as long as you're dependent on the supernatural, it will always be greater than what you could do in your own ability. The rabbi was teaching them secret, secret, sacred, supernatural ways. And so they're like, we never got to Beit Talmud. We never got to Beit Midrash, but this rabbi's taking us all the way. It's so funny, isn't it, that we've elevated theological degrees to the point where we've recreated our own pharisaical system in the local church. God doesn't care if you understand the Hebrew or the Greek, but you don't know his character. And that's what he was saying. He was saying, all those people have memorized the Bible, but they don't know anything about me. And see, if you're going to succeed in a relationship, you've got to understand him. Okay, watch this. Carnegie Mellon University, in the past decade, they did this massive comprehensive study, and they revealed that healthy relationships are healing relationships. So social support and belonging, this is what happens when Jesus calls disciples and we come together in our marriages. We come together in our singleness. We come together in our gifting like you saw on the stage. This is crazy. It reduces stress. It reduces heart disease, and the, in, the quality of life improves. And so what if I told you that taking an hour and a half once a week of coming to the local church and sitting in a seat and participating in worship and screaming your songs out of key because you don't know how to sing and taking notes during a sermon and learning the ways of God will literally reduce your statistically reduce heart disease that it'll bring down your stress and improve the quality of her life and healing relationships are healthy relationships. But there's three things I wanna give you because trust, honesty, and compassion are the three elements of a healing relationship. Trust, honesty, and compassion. Now, I wanna say this. If you go to a church where nobody trusts each other in leadership, where nobody's honest to each other in leadership, and no one has compassion in leadership, that toxicity will flow down, and it will look like pride, anger, and deception in the people. Okay, let me bring it home for you. If you're married, and you don't trust your spouse, you're not honest with your spouse, and you don't have compassion for your spouse, your children will rise up in pride, deception, and anger against both of you. See, you get to choose between a healing relationship or a hurting relationship. And see, what Jesus did as the first century rabbi is he brought the first century uh, believers 2,000 years ago into a relationship built on trust, honesty, and compassion. He said, I know that you view yourself as, as worthless. You're just working your family trade, but I have compassion. How many times in scripture does it say that Jesus was moved to compassion when he saw the people? Okay, then Jesus said, hey, Peter, I know that you're gonna fail me three times. You're gonna deny me. Peter said, no, not me, not me. He looked, and he said, but I have a plan for you. I prayed that you would become the rock and upon that foundation, I'll build the church and not even, even the gates of hell will prevail. So when Peter was at his lowest, he was being elevated by God to the highest. He looked, at, he looked around the table. He said, I'm telling you, one of you guys is gonna betray me. Is it me, Jesus? But see, he operated in trust and compassion. 
He trusted God, his father. This freaks a lot of Christians out. Christians who don't want to be under leadership because we have a ton of them on Long Island that go to a different church every week around here because they don't want to be submitted to any one leader. And I'm just calling it out because it's not healthy for you and you don't have to go to this church but submit to some church is that um, they don't understand that when, when people interacted with Jesus, he pointed to his leader. And he said, I don't do my will, I do the will of my father. So what does that show you? He trusted. And you go to most churches where the connect group leader doesn't trust their pastor and their pastor doesn't trust their lead pastor. And that creates anger, deception, and it flows down as pride. But Jesus showed another way. Jesus said, what if I can show up as God in flesh? But watch this. When people try to worship me, I'll deflect it up to God. That's crazy. So what happens is when we operate in compassion and trust and we operate in true honesty. You know, they tried to lie to Jesus all the time. And Jesus discerned their heart and would speak right into the thing they were lying about. And, and he, but he's still doing that. He's still speaking. I can't tell you how many times I'm on stage preaching a sermon and somebody goes, man, Pastor Mike, there's no way you could have known about that thing, but you spoke right into it. But that wasn't me. That's the Holy Spirit carrying out the ministry of Jesus to your life. He's still speaking into the lies you believe. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. I wanna give you this revelation. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his, his spirit is greater than one who takes a city. I'm gonna give you another translation. Better is a patient man than a warrior, and a man who controls his temper than the one who takes a city. What if I told you that your warfare in this next season looks like patience? What if I told you that you've built your whole identity behind warfare, but you never learned how to wield the weapon called patience? What if I told you that what Jesus was trying to teach them is trust God's plan. Trust, be honest about where you're at because if you can stay in that position, the city might fall and you walk over the walls of Jericho without ever having to war like you thought you were gonna war. What if patience brought your next best victory? Because here you're getting ready to end your marriage relationship. What if you became patient and said, God, I'm gonna believe you until breakthrough knowing it's on the other side. What if you're about to abandon your business and God says, no, just wait, stay patient because that wall is gonna fall and you're gonna begin to see exponential growth, but it's gonna be the result of patience. Does somebody feel what I'm, I'm saying? What if your warfare, see, instead of conquering anger, many of us become captives of our own passions. Instead of thinking before speaking, we speak without ever thinking. But see, your tongue is like this little rudder, and it's on a large ship called your life. And whichever direction you speak, that's the one your life moves. You call your husband a deadbeat, you've actually, you've actually prophesied it, and you'll begin to see it happen around you. You, you say, I hate this place. Well, this place will hate you, because what you sow is what you reap. I talk to people every day who say, you've done things in regions in New York that I told people were impossible. And I said, the only difference is when you said it, you believed it and it happened. And when I said it, I believed it and it happened. So if you don't think it's possible, you'll always be right. <laughs> if you don't think it's possible, you'll always be right. If you don't think that God can do it, 
you'll also be right. Not because God can't do it, but because you've, you've held his hands. Because see, Jesus himself went into regions where they didn't believe in him. And no miracles happened in those places. And it wasn't Jesus' fault because there was a lack of faith. I'm trying to stir up something in you today because there's this vigilance, this effort, and this patience that's needed to rule your anger instead of anger ruling you, to rule your impatience instead of impatience ruling you. Because as we rip up the list, on that list is a whole bunch of conditions. God, I'll be happy when my bank account hits this number. God says, rip up that list and don't be happy, receive joy. Happiness goes up and down with the stock market, but joy is your strength because it's a constant. See, you've written down, oh, I'll be a less angry when my husband starts taking me to church and acting a certain way. We'll rip up that list. You be faithful, knowing that the Holy Spirit's gonna deposit a word into your husband beyond his deaf ears in the spiritual realm that aren't listening to you. And oftentimes, anger elevates the volume but decreases the rate at which you're heard. Rip up the list. Trust. You know there's trust between you and Jesus and you and other people when you feel emotionally and physically safe. You know there's trust when you don't have to be on guard against being hurt by the other person. I'm not gonna have a church where we're all waiting for somebody to stab us in the back because we know we've got each other's back. Come on, that's trust. Honesty. Let me me tell you the true definition of honesty. Not having fear of the repercussions for telling someone how you really feel and think. I remember the first time I began to experiment with honesty and say, Julie, This is how I really feel. And we begin to build true honesty. Now it's so beautiful, but sometimes you have to say the hard things. No leader in our church should ever have to think, I can't tell someone I'm leading, I can't tell them the whole truth because I'm afraid of what's happened. It's about how you deliver that truth through compassion. It's how you deliver that truth through, through real trust. Last one is compassion. You know there's compassion when both the other person and you have the ability to understand one another and express kindness. See, Jesus was God in flesh saying, now I understand what your pain feels like. God was seated in the throne of heaven, receiving 24-7 worship for eternity. And he said, I've got to step out and I've got to go into that broken, sinful world and I've got to take on a physical body so that I can say, that I have compassion with you and for you because I understand all of your pain. So if you're here and you're like, Jesus doesn't understand my pain, I'm just here to tell you the truth he does. There's no time you'll ever hit your steering wheel with frustration and say, I don't wanna be here anymore. And Jesus say, I don't know what that feels like. See, Jesus knows exactly what that felt like, but his response was different than yours. There's never been a time where you've been hanging your head over a sink full of dishes saying, I don't want to take care of these kids anymore. I got to get out of here. And Jesus not know what that feels like. He knows exactly what that feels like. When he felt that same anguish, he said, God, get me out of this pain. But then in the spiritual realm, something began to activate inside of him. And he said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours, God. God. 
And see, he, there's a nevertheless. See, this is what I'm saying. If you failed that love test at the beginning of this sermon, I need you to understand that right when you get to the point of breaking and sometimes life just completely destroys you and you do fall apart, there's something that begins to emerge and it's the word nevertheless. I want to give up on this marriage. I want to give up on my kids. I want to give up on this business. I want to give up. I want to throw my hands up. I've been so broken, but this word comes into play nevertheless. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, in most situations in life, you hide your weakness. But in the church, you highlight your weakness. You don't hide it. You highlight it. You say, hey, there's no way that this is possible without him. And every single time you see a crack or a crevice, it reveals nevertheless, this is the power of Christ within me. And I love 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, because it says this, he needs our weaknesses to perfect his power. That's the proof when Will Camacho, whose mother died prematurely, sits on our stage and he begins to weep as a man. That weeping is not a form of weakness. It's, it's Christ's power being perfected in him that says, my mother's death could have drove me the wrong direction. But I said, I'll never treat my wife Liz poorly because I'm going to be the husband that my wife, my mother needed. And so in my weakness from that loss... Christ's power is, is revealed and perfected. I love that phrase, perfected, because it gets better. But it's not Christ's power getting better. It's it being revealed more fully through us. His power is always perfect, but it's perfected in us because the more we reveal it, the more we allow it. It's like, oh, the way I'm talking to my spouse, I could never do this on my own, but it's being perfected in me. I'm learning something. And if you ever saw anything good in a leader at V1 Church, you saw God through them. And you, you, if you ever felt a holy jealousy, it was you saying, I want the power of Christ perfected in that same weakness I carry. I want to show you something. You know, this was something that I was thinking about a lot this week. And, um, you know, I've been through some stuff. Anybody here ever been through some stuff? Anybody here ever been through some stuff? Uh, we've all gone through it. We've all had things that in life we struggle with. And I want to tell you this. I've learned you may want someone's car, but you don't want their trauma. You may want somebody's house, but you don't want their trauma. Amen? You may, you may want somebody's spouse until you find out what happens in their house. Amen? We all go through stuff. You know, really, this, this represents you. You came into the world. You were a baby at one point. This is your life. And then guess what? This, this is life. This is um, divorce of your parents. This is that molestation that happened by a relative. This is the church experiences where you were on fire for Christ and, and you were done wrong by leadership. And what we typically do is we throw away broken things. As a matter of fact, sometimes we're not even completely shattered, we're just chipped. 
Sometimes we're like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just chipped. But in our culture, in our society, we just throw broken things away. Matter of fact, sometimes when we look at all the pieces, we say, this is so insurmountable. To put this marriage back together again, it would never even resemble the wholeness in the way that we started. To, to, to put together, I'll never, I talk to people, I'll never go into leadership in church again because if you saw what it did to me, it's irreparable. And so maybe I could just bring this one whole piece to church with me, but getting the whole thing back together is impossible. But there's this Japanese art called kintsugi. And in their culture, they actually place gold between the cracks and they go through this painstakingly patient process. And they say, instead of throwing it away, instead of hiding the cracks, let's highlight the cracks with gold. And then the thing that was worthless actually carries, hear me. The thing that was worthless now carries more worth than the bowl just like it that was never broken. And so you might be saying like, well, yeah, they were never molested. They were never raped. You might be saying they were never broken in that same way. But if you allow Jesus to put you back together, I'm telling you, your life can carry more value because there's no wasted pain. There's no wasted pain. And so guess what? You can go from the verge of divorce to leading a marriage conference. You can go from the one singing in the back row to singing on the stage. You can go from the one who was the most poor to the one that's helping people budget their money and actually stepping into financial stewardship because your cracks carry a cost. And Jesus died so that you can actually increase instead of being thrown away. So would you stand to your feet with me? The reason why I like this illustration for you is that kintsugi takes a long time. It takes a long time. Finding the pieces, figuring out where they fit. Some of us have to come back to church every week so that we can keep figuring out where the pieces fit. Some of us need to keep showing up to worship every week until we find where the pieces fit. Some of us need to keep going to our connect groups every single time the connect group is happening because we have to figure out where these pieces fit. But when you're done, you have something to show off. And not in the way that you boast in the world where it's like, oh, look at how good I am. You have something to say, look at how good God is. Look at how good God is. And then somebody says, well, look how many lines have been filled. Look how many cracks. And so some of you, it's three, it's four things that have broken you in your life. Some of you have been shattered into pieces. But doesn't that just increase the value of your life when the process is completed? We're about to open up this altar the digital altar is opening because I believe that there's a point of contact for prayer that some of you need, and that's your first step. If you're with your spouse right now, for many of you, we're continuing this series, Rip Up the List. I want you to just join, hold hands with them in this moment. I wanna pray for us as a church. Come on, if you're watching online, we have the global digital Zoom lobby that you can come into for prayer as well, but there's something stirring. There's something stirring. There's something stirring.
And see, I used to always say, when God puts together broken things, it's as if they were never broken. And that is true, but that doesn't mean that people can't see it used to be broken. We're not hiding, we're highlighting at this church. We're not hiding, we're highlighting. And so some of you have so much shame, but I'm telling you, let God replace that shattered shame with the gold of Kintsugi and literally say, now I'm gonna take what the enemy caused you to run with and you're gonna highlight it instead of hide it. Oh, I feel it. Let me pray for us as a church and then we're gonna open up the altar so that you can receive prayer here in the room, the global digital lobby. Father, I thank you right now for what you're doing, even couples who are saying they're sorry, who are uniting an extension of the marriage conference. I believe you're doing even more work in the room right now. God, for singles, Father, who are in a season and they're saying, God, there's so much brokenness in my, in my sexuality. There's so much brokenness in my emotions. I'm not even ready for a spouse. I'm not even ready for a marriage. But God, you're doing a work in them that's beautiful. And Father, I thank you right now for what you and you alone are doing. God, global online, people in other countries right now who are beginning to feel your embrace, the warmth of your embrace. And Father, I thank you that you've called us You've called us to be ambassadors of your love, that your power is being perfected within us, God, that we don't have to shrink back. We don't have to be in fear, but God, we can run towards you. We can run into your arms. We can walk on water in Jesus' name. Come on, can somebody just throw up your hands and shout amen? Come on, chains are falling, the altars are open. If you wanna come, come. If you need prayer, come and get prayer. Come on, online. Yes, Jesus, you change everything.